Hello, everyone. Welcome to this event. Um, it's my great, great honor to introduce um, a man who has been described as the father of British venture capital and the father of social investment. He was the co-founder and executive chairman of Apex Partners Worldwide, a global private equity firm, one of Britain's first private equity firms, and co-founder and chairman of the British Venture Capital Association. And then for the past two decades, he spent all his time catalyzing global efforts to drive private capital to serve social and environmental good. He serves as chairman of the Global Steering Committee for Impact Investment and the Portland Trust. And is the co-founder of Social Finance UK, USA, and Israel, and co-founder chair of Bridges Fund Management, and former co-founding chair of Big Society Capital. He chaired the G8 Social Impact Investment Task Force, the UK Social Investment Task Force and the UK's Commission on Unclaimed Assets. He's the former director of the Harvard Management Committee. All of us in academia know what that takes to actually uh, uh, manage those kinds of assets, in, in especially in, in different climates. And a former member of the Harvard University Board of Overseers and the University of Oxford Investment Committee. Um, today, Sir Ronald Cohen is gonna talk to us about his fascinating new book, Impact, reshaping capitalism to drive real change. And I just want to show you the, the, the cover of it um, so that you know what to look for in the bookstores. Um, and before I, I turn it over uh, to him, I just want to add one, one small detail, um, which I, I think is not trivial uh, in this context. Um, Sir Ronald was born in Egypt and left as a refugee at the age of 11 when his family came to the UK. Um, and this really caught my attention because I also uh, was a refugee escaping religious persecution and came to Canada at the age of five. And I think when you have that kind of background, you realize that if it weren't for just like a flip of a coin, you know, the randomness of life of luck, then um, your life circumstances would have been um, very, very, very different. And I think the awareness of that creates a tremendous desire and understanding to want to give to others. And that's what we see in Sir Ronald's life and um, what I think he's, he's going to lay out for us today, a framework in which we can use all the great uh, uh, potential of capital markets to be able to provide all the opportunities to others who maybe didn't get the right side of the coin flip. Sir Ronald, please. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Ashraf. Please call me Ronnie, and if I may call you Nava. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to this uh, conversation um, with you and with all uh, our participants from uh, the LSE and, uh, and, and elsewhere. Uh, it's really a great pleasure uh, to be here with you all uh, today because we're living through a period when all of us are asking ourselves questions about the future. Uh, COVID has shaken our habits and beliefs and is opening up all sorts of questioning about capitalism. And my book tries to lay out a solution which is within our grasp. We don't really want to give up the huge power of markets, uh, financial markets, entrepreneurship uh, in putting people out of poverty uh, into prosperity. At the same time, 
it's obvious to all of us on this score that uh, the existing system cannot continue to operate in the way that it is doing. If we look at uh, the issues which inequality uh, has uh, created, at the frustrations which it has caused, at the Gilets Jaunes in France, at uh, the demonstrations in, uh, in uh, Chile and in uh, the Lebanon, most recently in the United States, after these three terrible murders, then we realize that these inequalities are threatening the very stability of our society. And at the same time, businesses continue to inflict huge damage on the environment. Uh, and we have no obvious way of stopping it, despite efforts over four decades. And so while a lot of people have tried to diagnose uh, the problems that uh, we face, none, uh, in, in, you know, at least so far as I have seen, have come up with a way of changing our system so that our system distributes outcomes more fairly, so that investors and companies contribute to bringing solutions to the big challenges we face. Uh, and so my book tries to answer that question. What changes can we make to our system so that we get its full potential to work in improving lives and our planet instead of creating problems? Well, fortunately for us, values have been changing over the last decade or two. In particular, led by younger people like many of you on, on this call, we have begun to purchase products from companies whose values we share, to seek employment in the companies that uh, we agree uh, with, that have practices that are consonant with our principles, uh, and to invest only in companies that do not pollute uh, and do not use child labor or create uh, and perpetuate uh, social issues of various uh, kinds. And if we look at how these uh, changes in preferences have affected our financial markets, uh, then um, Nava, as you well know, uh, we have seen huge changes in the trend. Uh, we now have about $30 trillion going to environmental, social, and governance investment. That represents about a third of all investable, uh, forgive me, all professionally managed uh, assets in the world, and about 15% of all investable assets in the world. These are investments that seek, on the whole, to prevent environmental or social damage. Uh, and to improve the governance of, of uh, companies. Alongside that, we have about $700 billion now of impact investment. What is impact investment? Well, it has the same intentionality that uh, ESG investment does, but it's defined by measuring the impact that we create. And so, we have more than 30 trillion today going to try to improve lives and the planet, but only 
a very small fraction of that measures the impact that is created. And that, NAVA, is one of the underlying reasons why our system is not changing. So I'll pause there for a minute and uh, be very happy to answer your, your, your next question. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, impact is, is a tough word. You know, it's why it's so much easier for people to measure their inputs, for example, in, in the ESG measures, um, in particular because it, it, it implies a form of causal inference. How do you see, and that's a very difficult thing to do if you don't have a counterfactual so that's usually why we do sometimes randomized controlled trials to be able to measure the impact of development aid or development projects. How do we bring that kind of science to this massive uh, sector? So I think we have the ability now, because of big data and technology, to measure the impact of companies. Uh, we can measure their product impact, their employment impact, and their operational impact. And in fact, a, an initiative which I chair at Harvard Business School called the Impact Weighted Accounts Initiative just last week published on its website the environmental impact of 2,500 companies. And when you look at those numbers, then you begin to understand that we are at a historic crossroad, another, uh, just as our predecessors were in 1929. What do I mean by that? In 1929, every company picked its own accounting principles and there were no auditors. After the great crash, investors sat up and said, can it really be that we've been investing in companies without managing to uh, measure their profits dependably? And you know the history after that. In 1933, the US government passed legislation to mandate the use of generally accepted accounting principles and the use of auditors. Today, after the crash of COVID-19, we find ourselves in a situation where investors are really asking themselves, have we really been investing in companies and measuring only their profit without measuring their impact on lives and on the environment and the cost of all the damage that they're inflicting, which governments then tax us all to try to remedy? And if you go to the Harvard Business School uh, a database to which I referred, then you will see some striking numbers. Uh, you will see that um, a fossil fuel company uh, like ExxonMobil, and I'm not in favor of investing in fossil fuels, but whether we are or not, shouldn't we know that ExxonMobil is uh, causing $38 billion worth of damage a year? And that if you compare it with its competitors, Shell, uh, then Shell is um, delivering $23 billion worth of damage a year, and BP is causing $13 billion a year. Aren't these relevant figures for people who are making investment decisions? And if we look at uh, environmental um, uh, consequences of chemical companies, and you take a company like Sasol, 
and you discover that it's causing 130% of its total revenues, its total sales in environmental damage, and you compare it uh, with Solvay, and Solvay is only causing 29%, and you compare it with BASF, which is five times as big as uh, either of them, uh, and the BASF is only causing 10%, shouldn't we be uh, sharing these numbers widely? And if we think in terms of the diversity uh, that we all seek to achieve in companies, isn't it relevant to measure the cost of social diversity or lack of social diversity? Uh, take a company like Intel, for example. Uh, Intel pays about $7 billion a year in wages to its workforce. And that sounds like a huge uh, social contribution. But if you take into account the local demographics around Intel's facilities, and Intel has made a very big effort, one of the leading efforts in the tech field to create diversity in its workforce, there is a, still a huge gap between the local demographics and the demographic representation of the different echelons of its uh, hierarchy. And if you take the salaries that these communities would have received had they been employed, then the positive social impact from Intel's employment falls to two and a half billion dollars from seven billion dollars a year. Should we not be sharing these numbers and creating a race to the top uh, within the tech industry and then comparing it with other industries? And so while our predecessors, when they began to argue uh, for generally accepted accounting principles and auditors, heard representations in the US Congress saying this will be the end of American capitalism, and we know that this led to much greater confidence in our financial system and helped it to grow to the mammoth size that it is today. We can say that the same is going to be true of measuring impact. We can today begin the process of mandating that companies two years from now must begin to publish impact-weighted financial accounts alongside their regular accounts number. And then we will be able to see that those companies that create greater impact, more loyal consumers, greater numbers of talented uh, people, uh, more loyal investors, and avoid the risk of uh, regulation and taxation, while putting an impact lens on, opens the door to new uh, investment opportunity sets. And for that reason, I believe that optimizing risk-return impact, which is the new paradigm I talk about in the book, will lead to better financial results than just optimizing risk and return. The fallacy that doing good and doing well will mean that you do less well is going to be exposed. And we already begin to see examples of it in entrepreneurship uh, across the world. 
so it, it sounds like you don't, uh, you don't believe there would be a trade-off between doing good and doing well. Um, to what extent is this just simply about a short-term versus long-term vision? So, for example, an investor who doesn't care at all about social impact, but uh, wants to make sure that in the long run, their risk is mitigated and they have the highest returns they can, understanding that both employees and customers care a lot now about uh, impact themselves, but the investor does not need to care. All they need to be thinking about is, in the long run, is this company going to have the greatest returns? Why is that not sufficient to drive capital towards these businesses? Right? So, so, so I, I would, there are people who argue that you wouldn't even need the impact measures. If these companies are truly going to have the highest returns in the market, you could just get investors who are patient and they will find, the market itself will find these opportunities. That's fine if you measure the impact and if investors have the information on which to base their decisions. Right. But if you don't, and if you have companies claiming to be delivering great positive impact and hiding the negative impacts that they're creating, then investors yeah. don't have the tools to make the right decisions. I'm not saying that we need to mandate anything except the publication of the impacts of companies so that we measure their financial and their impact performance when we make decisions. I guess that we sometimes think that markets will, if that information is really valuable in terms of returns in the long run, markets will find that information. But I think what you're saying is that that has not really happened in the past. You know, at the time of um, the 1929 crisis, mm -hmm. companies had the ability to hide a chunk of their profits without telling investors how much they had hidden. These were called hidden reserves. And huge arguments were made that this was necessary to the stability of companies. Now, today, we can't imagine investing in a company and not knowing what profit it's actually making because management decided to squirrel away a certain amount of money. And yet, people argued for it. I think we have a similar situation today, Naba. Companies are not keen to have their impacts measured. Many of them are going to be shown to be lacking uh, in comparison with their competitors. Uh, and so what is driving this is today consumer and the talent and investors. That's what's driving this impact uh, revolution. But we don't have the tools. The 2,500 companies whose environmental impact we cost uh, uh, at uh, Harvard uh, those 2,500 companies haven't provided that information mm -hmm. to us. We've done it from public information, which they have provided to the public. There are still gaps. We've had to make judgments about the gaps that exist. It shouldn't be the case. Companies should have an obligation to publish the cost of the social and environmental impacts they create. We can then apply monetary values to them. We can set off the pluses and the minuses that they create through their products, their employment and their operations and come down to an impact weighted profit, which may be very different from the profit they publish, just as mm -hmm. the profit they published before 29 was very different from the, the profits they published uh, afterwards. But we need these tools. Now, we're going to come out of COVID, I know you'll agree, with some very serious problems ahead of us. 
social problems as well as the environmental problems we, we know. We're going to find a very large number of people unemployed. I've heard figures of as many as 40% of the currently unemployed being unable to get their own jobs back. One obvious reason is companies have got used to operating on a slim down basis and they want to hold on to these productivity gains. The most vulnerable, the unemployed, the single parent families, the homeless, uh, the disabled uh, and others are going to find themselves hit hard yet again because stimulus packages will again inevitably focus on the biggest uh, companies and financial institutions in an effort to get quick results. So how are we going to cope at a time when governments will have more debt than ever before with this increase in social challenges? If we don't cope with it, we're going to get violent rebellion against our system, mm -hmm. which we saw before COVID. And so it seems to me, and I make the case for it in the book, that government has to attract private investment and entrepreneurship and big companies to tackle the big issues we face. Government cannot bring all the solutions. And businesses and investors have different ways of assessing risk and they have different uh, risk profile. They're prepared to cope with occasional failure. And so I believe that if we mandate the publication of impact-weighted accounts alongside traditional financial accounts, we will change our economic system because, Nava, we will bring impact alongside profit to the center of our economic system. As I describe it in the book, overthrowing the tyranny of profit and putting impact by its side to keep it in check. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think it, it's, it's utterly compelling for so many of us, um, the, the ability to catalyze these factors in the market, uh, you know, at the Marshall Institute, we are all about how you use private action for public good. The challenge is, is exactly as you say, you know, the devil's in the details of the data and uh, how good the data is. And um, in the book, you talk about impact washing as a, you know, sort of like the greenwashing, but, but sort of on, on all scales. And, um, and I think mandating is one thing. And there's also just how you get the right data. And so I'll, I'll just share, actually, there's a question from the audience. And, and uh, by the way, on the audience, please feel free to add questions into your Q&A. And we're allowing people to upload them, download them, and then they get filtered through to me. So, um, and I'll just integrate them into the conversation. This is a, a question from Michelle Bruti, is an investor. How do we convince companies to disclose impact-weighted accounts? Companies today are struggling with disclosing information um, uh, to ESG with TCFD, GRI, et cetera, frameworks. How is this different? So this will be different because it will prevent us from having a, um, a broken-up approach to measuring impacts where there are many requests to companies to measure certain aspects of the social and environmental impact they create. They appear in all sorts of different tables. They have different yep. rankings. 
you can't compare the rankings from one table to another. You don't know how to value uh, a ranking uh, for a social a good uh, against uh, a, 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 a lower ranking for an environmental good. By monetizing the value of the impacts created, then you take care of the pluses and minuses and the differences between social and environmental impact. And rather like accounting policies that enable you to come to profit, you have impact accounting policies that enable you to come to impact-weighted profit. Now, the big advantage of, of that is that financial analysts can use all of the tools that they're used to using on impact-weighted numbers. So you look at the price-earnings ratio of a company, its evaluation on the stock market relative to its profitability. You can do that on an impact-weighted profit basis. And you can compare two companies, uh, one which apparently makes a huge amount of money but creates uh, a, you know, a huge environmental and, and social cost, and another one that creates uh, you know, the same profit and much lower uh, environmental uh, and, and social costs. Uh, what are you going to invest in? Are you going to invest in the one which is polluting more and has a lower impact weighted profit? Of course not. You're going to invest in the one which is delivering performance both at the impact level and at uh, the level of profitability. And in that way, you begin to shift our norms and our values away from defining success as just making money to yes. defining success as providing an improvement for lives and for the planet as well. Yes, because strategy is based on measurement. <laughs> Often it drives, it, it, measurement can drive strategy as, as, as Porter told us. So yes, I think, I think that that's, that's right. I, well, I want to distinguish between two things, which is uh, the data itself and, and the, the complexities of really getting the right data and making the trade-offs that you're talking about and the incentives of the company itself to get the right data. And I'm wondering to what extent you think this, the incentives of this is related to the previous question. These incentives uh, in some way at the beginning need to be mandated because you would think that a company, if, if you have all these investors who are interested, Eventually, in a competitive market, the companies who are credible in their data are the ones who are going to get the investment. However, that's more of a long-run process, and many people, many companies are rewarded by short-run returns. Yeah. Yep. So how do we reconcile how that? How do we do that? So I think yeah. we have to be very clear in our minds that the purpose of impact accounting is to give an objective view of the impact that's being delivered government then can choose to provide incentives. So it may be, as somebody suggested on a, a webinar a couple of days ago, a questioner, it may be that one day government says, you know what, we're going to give a tax credit uh, for those companies that are delivering, delivering above a certain level of positive impact. Or maybe we're going to tax them on the basis of their impact-weighted, you know, of their impact-weighted uh, profits in reverse order. The greater the negative impact you have, the greater your tax rate would be. But these sensitives, uh, these incentives would have to come uh, from government, not from the accounting system. 
and and there would have to be a kind of auditing process, right, to make sure Definitely. that there are right Definitely. data. This is a this is a question from Charlie Killingback, who's a student. Um, he says, how do companies and funds overcome the cost of impact, both upfront in, in impact mandates and ongoing measurements? Does blended finance play a role here to be able to collect the data uh, objectively rather than, you know, if, if it's collected from within the company, you worry a lot about the uh, bias in the data. So the numbers have to be audited. And there is so much information available now. I have been amazed by how revealing these figures at uh, Harvard Business School have been um, about the impacts of, uh, of, of companies. There are relatively few uh, gaps that uh, need to be filled. And the ability of companies to collect and provide that data is high. It is often an insuperable, an insuperable cost. And if right. you compare it to the environmental cost and the social cost we're creating, it's a very tiny uh, cost. So coming to the issue of, of blended uh, finance, clearly uh, there are some investors who may be prepared to accept greater impact and lower profit. I'm not saying that there aren't certain uh, investors who would accept uh, that uh, in order to tackle the social issue that is close to their hearts, they're prepared to forego some profit. But what I am arguing against, Nava, is this preconceived notion that doing good and doing well, risk-return impact in my terms, is going to necessarily lead to your doing less well financially because there's a philanthropic aspect to it. It's just not the case, in my view. I think the efficient investment frontier for optimizing risk-return impact will be in a more attractive place than optimizing just risk-return for the reasons I gave. The most obvious one being the risk of regulation if you're a co-company or taxation or, uh, and so on. And as you said yourself, over time, if the market has the information, then you see the value of coal stocks going down and clean energy stop stocks going up because that's where investors perceive the future is going to go and there's greater potential in it. But in the absence of the numbers, it's going to take us ages to get there, particularly since the information that is published, reported without numbers, tends to be self-serving, as I was saying, greenwashing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And that, that goes to how do we get the quality of the data and how do we actually quantify these things? So let me bring in a question from Paul Marshall, who's the co-founder of our, of our Marshall Institute, as well as many, many other uh, uh, achievements. Um, it is relatively easy now to quantify environmental bads due to markets like carbon emissions, but there is no mechanism for pricing social bads or governance bads. Um, and which is why the ESG measures are all over the place, right? And no two people, that's my, my adding into it, and no two people can even agree on the cost of low diversity or unequal voting, voting rights. How do you begin to get agreement on these costs or prices? And I was, just to add there, uh, you know, looking through your book and also the, the, uh, the impact accounting measures that are published now, you know, I, I can see the way you had made some of those trade-offs. Maybe you can share some of those um, with the audience, exactly the way you want to quantify this, because there is a lot of debate uh, about about the right way to quantify. 
So, hello, Paul. It's, uh, it's nice to be reconnected on, on this webinar, and thank you for everything uh, you're doing through your institute. If you look at social costs, I think you start off by feeling nothing can be measured. I can give you an example from the very first step uh, we took, really, in this area, which was the invention of the social impact bond. And we were trying to reduce uh, the number of young prisoners going back to jail. And everybody kept saying to us, well, how are you going to measure an improvement in the life of a prisoner? That's impossible. How can you do anything which is uh, pay for success? But measuring the number of prisoners who go back to jail, that's easy. And so the first social impact bond basically focused on saying, if we can manage to reduce the number of prisoners going back to jail by more than 7.5%, then the government will pay the investors in the social impact bond their capital back and the, and the return. Over five years, that particular bond reduced the number of prisoners going back by 9.7%, and the investors made 3.1% uh, a year uh, on top of that capital, which they got back. So we have to get beyond this first step of saying nothing can be measured in the social area. Now, let's take diversity, which you raised, Paul. I gave you the example of Intel. To think conceptually of how do you measure diversity um, is sort of a, a difficult thing. But when you start doing that and you realize, my gosh, it just means counting the number of people who should have been employed at every level of, of the organization and multiplying that number by the salaries that would be paid for those jobs. That is the cost to that community of not having that diversity. It is the poorer by the loss of that, of that income. So the answer is it's a lot more practical and granular than we imagine to measure social costs. And I am totally of the view that uh, when next year we add to environmental impact, the impact of employment and the impact of operations, uh, we will be able to give a view, a dependable view of the impact created by companies, of the total impact, of the total net impact created by companies. So uh, just on that, and going back to the, how do we, you know, measuring impact versus outcomes, for example, so we can measure outputs, that's already better than just measuring the inputs, we can measure outcomes, and then there's the, the whole impact piece. And, um, you know, there's the question um, that Paul raised about how you price these things. And then there's a secondary question, which is about causal inference, and the marginal contribution of this company to the outputs that you've measured. So you could say, okay, well, you know, since this company came in, X amount of people have been employed, they've gone into schools, et cetera. You can, you can measure all of those and you could even sort of put a price on those okay, under the conditions you're talking about. But then this, there's another question, which is how do we know that in absence of this company, the same outputs would not have been achieved by some other company, for example, or by nothing else? So um, in some of the social impact bonds, they actually had randomized trials so that you could actually measure the counterfactual and know what is the true impact. How do we do that on, on a larger scale? Okay, but uh, we don't worry 
about that in financial accounting, right? Uh, would another company I'm have sure made this? Yeah. So why should we expect a higher standard from impact accounting than we do from financial accounting? And I do agree with you, Nava. There are lots of judgmental issues, but financial accounting is also based on a huge number of judgments. Take the sales of a software company. It signs a five-year contract. Uh, some companies will argue we should take half of the total revenues over those five years into this year's sales. Because in future years, we're going to have much less expenditure. So half of the total profit should be in, in this year's um, uh, uh, profits. Uh, and, and then the other half should be spread over five years. Now, that's an accounting room. It's something that you can argue about. Does it effectively recognize the income of this company? And these judgmental issues exist you know, throughout financial accounting, and they will exist throughout impact accounting. And I'll also say this. We've had nine decades of perfecting our financial accounting system. Mm -hmm. But if you go back and read the papers uh, in the 30s, about creating generally accepted accounting principles, you have the same discussions we're having today about impact. Is it feasible? If it is feasible, can you really compare? If you can compare, will it be good for the system? And so we have to come back and say, look, humanity has made a huge amount of progress in improving people's lives and bringing people out of poverty. But our existing system is self-defeating today. We are creating more damage every year than our governments can remedy by taxing us. And so we're digging a deeper and deeper hole for ourselves. How do we change that? The way we change that is to make sure that companies do not willy-nilly create negative costs for the environment and for people in their search for profit. And the way to avoid that is to measure their impact so that it is totally transparent, like their profit, and an investor or a talented person looking for a job or a consumer wanting to buy a particular product can look at the performance of a company, not just in financial terms, but also in human and environmental terms. Uh, you know, it's interesting because I think, as you say, the, the science itself will um, also respond to this because we've had so many decades. Imagine what would happen if we really opened up the market properly for academic work as well. You know, I was just thinking that we, we have a, a piece with um, Oriana Bandiera and Virginia Mini that we're just working on right now that really truly measures the talent uh, lost in different environments of not having diversity. Uh, and, and, but, you know, that's been out there. In, uh, but not well done. Once you develop a market, there's a competitive uh, desire to get the best numbers. And I think that's partly what, what you're, you're arguing for. Absolutely. And this, go this goes back to the question of the incentives. So that's from the academic side. We get you know, incentives on the academics to produce the best science on that. And then let's go back to the incentives on the company side. There's several questions that have arisen from the audience on the incentives on the company side and how we generate a system you know, and, and this, I, I mean, I would say, you know, we need to think about uh, potentially to what extent you believe this is the role of the government 
and, and legal structures uh, versus can be developed from the market. So let me just throw out a few of these questions. They're, they're all sort of very related. Um, so one is from Sophie Matthews, member of the public. Given the current state of the economy, we're seeing that larger companies are in a better position to deal with the economic effects of the pandemic. Do you think obligating companies to publish their impact will benefit larger companies over smaller ones since they're be more likely to invest in a way to improve their impact compared to smaller firms? I, let me just add to this. that I, So that's a very interesting thing, the way that the data you collect then will change the uh, strategy of the firm and then actually you don't get the right data because they're, they're adjusting, right, to, to things. However, I would say that actually the, the system you're suggesting would uh, equalize things so that we could actually get a benefit for those who would have a comparative advantage, even if they're small, in um, impact. Let me, let me throw out a couple of the others. Hazel Beers, co-author of the Social Value Act, can we have a legal requirement for auditors to audit for impact? And similarly, from Chris Toys, an LSE alum, who works at Tribe Impact Capital, a wealth management firm on impact investing, how important is government action and international coordination in moving forward the reporting of impact by corporates? It's a very good question. Uh, hello, Hazel, uh, and uh, it, it's wonderful to have you on this webinar. Absolutely, impact numbers have to be audited in the same way that uh, financial uh, profit numbers are. And uh, the auditing firms have been very interested in doing that, as uh, some of you on the call may, may know. Uh, the auditing profession uh, has a few um, threats, let's say, uh, to its business model ahead of it. Uh, with the arrival of blockchain, uh, it may actually simplify a lot of the verification that uh, auditors are having to go through. So uh, the auditing profession is very interested in measuring impact as well. And I don't anticipate that you will need brand new firms. You may need brand new people within the auditing firms to concentrate on some of this. Uh, but you, I don't anticipate that you will need uh, brand new firms um, to to do that. And then the second question, forgive me, I didn't write it down. Um, just just about the large versus small firms. Oh, large small. And how this so, could how so, this could affect the, the marketplace basically for and and who's uh, who's able to adjust properly to this data. So intuitively, uh, I think most of us might agree uh, that small companies create fewer. Uh, environmental and social problems than, than large ones. But shouldn't we know that? And if we know that, mightn't that influence government policy? Now, let me give you an example. We're going to come out of this recession, as we were saying, with companies probably net shedders of labor rather than net employers. We're going to need to boost uh, the employment in smaller companies. We're going to need to boost the creation of small companies. Uh, once again, we're going to need to provide investment capital to these companies um, uh, as well. Uh, Startup uh, uh, schemes and, uh, and so on and so forth. Or we will take ages to absorb uh, all this uh, unemployment. Uh, you know, I hope uh, it won't happen, but it could be uh, similar to the 30s. And so the question now of saying, um, if you are going to have government funding, if you're going to benefit from tax breaks, we would like you to publish impact weighted accounts arises. And I think COVID provides us with an opportunity to do that. And analysts for years from now on 
will be analyzing, if we have these numbers, who really creates positive impact in our economic system. Is it the big companies or is it the small ones? These are numbers that we should have. Yep. And so uh, this is a question that, that, again, hits on now the intersection of data quality and incentives. This is from Sahab Bardai, Ashoka University student from India. Impact measurement tends to be very expensive and highly depends on the quality of data collected. How can this challenge be dealt with? So I, I think these are very similar to the, the previous questions, but again, trying to think where do we get the money and how do we create the incentives upfront? Even though in the, in the medium term, the companies themselves will have the incentive, but um, to do it right and to have the right auditors. But at the moment, we're not there. So how do we do that? So uh, when you say impact investment is expensive, I suspect you're thinking of social impact bonds and outcomes funds and the measurement. Impact measurement. Yeah. Impact uh, measurement. Yeah. The, the impact and, and measurement. You're, exactly. You're thinking about accounting measures, but, but to get them right. So, so ESG has been adopted so widely because it's a kind of checklist of inputs. You know, the company is doing this, the company is doing that. Um, whereas if you're really going to get into the right stuff, it would take more money to probably measure that properly. Yeah, but you see, I don't think that it is expensive by nature. I think it mm. is expensive relative to the very small size of transactions that are taking place today. I think if you added the zero or two to most of the social impact bonds, uh, the cost of verification of the um, information wouldn't rise very much and would become a very small percentage of the total cost. It reminds me of the early days of venture capital, uh, when uh, people said to me, oh, the cost of uh, implementing a venture capital transaction is so great, it can't possibly make money for you. And of course, over time, we standardized uh, the structure of uh, venture capital funds, uh, through the use of general partnerships, we standardized investment agreements and so on and so forth. We need standardization. I think we've gone through the proof of concept uh, with social impact bonds and development impact bonds. Now we need to standardize the way in which we set them up. And I'm personally working on a billion dollar education outcomes fund for Africa and the Middle East which is sponsored by the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment, which I chair, the GSG. And if you have a billion that uh, is paying for outcomes, then you're going to standardize the contracts that you sign with these organizations. And these organizations aren't going to have to be the bushes to find someone who can pay for the educational outcomes they can deliver. So I think it's primarily a question of scale. It isn't inherent to it. Yeah, and, and I think this, this addresses the next question, um, but I also thinks about, you know, is, is trying to get at, at, at how a company understands what social impact actually is. So this is a question from Ada Nabulsi from the UAE, and she uh, uh, incoming student in our uh, Marshall Executive Program, actually on an executive master's in social business and entrepreneurship at the LSD. How do we ensure that impact is sustainable and long-term and not just the company's CSR? So, so not just the spending done in CSR, but rather the intrinsic to the value created by the company. Through measurement. Through measurement. CSR is philanthropy. It's giving money away primarily to enhance the brand of the company that is doing exactly. so. 
nothing is measured, okay? Uh, it's relationship building with players yeah. in different markets. Here, we're talking in terms of being able to plot the impact performance of a company on a yearly basis. And there aren't so many things that you can do with impact in, you know, in the very short term. It is a longer term gain. If you want to increase diversity in your workforce, it's going to take you some time to achieve that. And so I think bringing impact in alongside profit will shift us uh, a bit, at least, in the direction of longer term thinking. And I think the... Um the other thing it will do to mandate all companies to do this or to have some, some mechanism for all companies to do this is I think one, of, one of the things that people have worried about the most with the impact investing world is that there's this sort of small number of companies, especially, you know, you think about social enterprises that measure the double bottom line. But because the, the second bottom line of social impact is often easy to um, uh, impact wash, in your words, you can get people who are just telling good stories to get their social venture capital who potentially couldn't make it in the regular world of, of uh, that where they would be looking at returns and profits and instead go to this world. So you would get like an adverse selection into the people who want impact investing, <clears throat> who need impact investing, simply because it's easier to make up the numbers about right. impact and investing. <laughs> and we have to avoid that. And uh, measurement is the way to avoid it. But... There's another very important uh, point, Nava. If you look at the tech revolution, the tech revolution created what we can see today is the water on which every ship sails. You can't really set up a company and not think about technology uh, because technology is being used by all your competitors and so on. I think impact will do the same. It will be another layer of water on top of technology mm. and mm. companies that are delivering impact are going to disrupt the models of companies that are not. So if you are a company which is polluting and creating social issues, your business is going to be overtaken by those who are delivering positive impact. Take one example, Tesla. The purpose of Tesla wasn't just to make money. Elon Musk's purpose was to wean us away from the combustion engine. And he has succeeded in shifting the whole of the automobile industry, a single entrepreneur, through new technology, seeking impact, has shifted the whole of the automobile industry away yeah. from the combustion engine to hybrids and electric cars. Now, I know there are all sorts of questions about, well, how much pollution is he creating through the batteries and all the rest of it. And I say, perfect, let's measure both and let's net them out. Let's look at the benefit in terms of the environment, in terms of use of the vehicle, and let's look at the harm to the environment from the creation of the batteries, the extraction of the minerals and, and getting rid of them subsequently. We can measure all these things. And when you've done that, Tesla will have an impact-weighted bottom line. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think this disruption is at the heart of it. That's why I say in the book that this is like the tech revolution. If you look at the new business models now that young entrepreneurs 
are putting into action. Uh, you begin to find business models with impact at their core. The more impact you deliver, the more money you make. A fintech platform to help the less well-off manage their finances better and get themselves out of the debt holes they're in. The more impact you deliver, the more profit you make. And those are going to be the business models of the future. As Michael Porter, to whom you referred, has said, these concepts of shared value are the growth and profit opportunity of the future. And the young people on this webinar who understand that and who are entrepreneurial, you should pick a social or an environmental issue that's big enough for you to be excited about trying to solve. And then you should go all out to do that. Yes, and in fact, there's uh, one of those, uh, Alex Green, an LSE PhD candidate and board member of LSE Generate, which wants to gen uh, foster student entrepreneurship, that for those young people who are setting up their enterprises right now, how would you advise them to start to set up impact-weighted accounts? So I would advise you to stay close to the effort at Harvard Business School. Uh, you can go to the website. All of the information is uh, publicly available. Over the next, uh, as I said, over the next year, uh, you will see how we measure environmental, employment, and operational impact. And then begin to implement it. Get your accounting firm to help you to define the metrics. Uh, we can help you uh, to, we being the Harvard Business School effort, we can steer you to people who can help you to solve the issue of monetization, what values should you place on, on certain things, and be a leader in showing the way forward to the big companies. That's great. So it's, it's, a, it's a good time to, um, to bring up this question, which is, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're almost at the um, 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's um, <laughs> classic yes. paper yes. that uh, it's the social responsibility of the business to increase its profits. And that's the only responsibility it has. Um, and so this is a question from Marie Satin, LSE student from Norway. And uh, the question is, many business actors of Western capitalist systems have for a long time acted in accordance with Friedman's doctrine. Um, so what has caused mainstream profit-maximizing businesses, such as investment banks, to perform impact investments? And what causes them to look more broadly? And could it be, I mean, this is just about the kind of the trends that you're seeing, but also, you know, going back to the Tesla example, to be, to be trite, Tesla didn't need impact weighted accounting, right? They got a lot of investments. <laughs> so clearly the market is pretty good at figuring out what's going to be really important in a new, in a new technology oh, that's important. You, you say, you say Tesla didn't need it, but if today you could show that the net environmental contribution of Tesla was hugely positive and you could fight all the naysayers who are saying, no, look at their batteries and look at the this and the that, wouldn't that be a value to Tesla? Wouldn't its share price go up? You know, it's not true uh, that uh, we don't need impact-weighted accounting for Tesla. Tesla needs impact-weighted accounting in order to be able to defend itself against all these accusations. Right, right. No, believe me, I, I, I believe so much in the power of data and especially in measuring impact. Um, but there is such pushback from the Chicago school that Milton Friedman uh, is so from precisely I, for this reason. 
I, I want to get back to Milton Friedman because Milton Friedman came up with a doctrine which at the time seemed to provide the solution uh, for growth and everybody thought growth would actually lead to the improvement of uh, society and the environment. Everybody sort of assumed that. And now we see that's just not right. He was wrong. Milton Friedman was wrong. If the business of business is just business and making money, then our system is going to dig itself and dig us into a deeper and deeper and deeper hole. That isn't the purpose of our system. The purpose of our system is to share prosperity fairly and at the same time to give the opportunity for people to use their talent to make profit and deliver impact. I believe that contrary to Milton Friedman, the future is going to be for companies that have impact integrity and impact performance. Yeah, so that's why you talk in your, in your book about the invisible heart of the market, that the invisible hand of the market has not allowed us to achieve these goals that we also have. Exactly. I, as you say, Nava, uh, thank you for mentioning it. I believe that had Adam Smith uh, known that we would be able to measure impact in the 21st century, he would talk of the invisible heart of markets guiding their invisible hand. Yeah, wonderful. Right place to end this on. Can we just show the book one more time? And um, and yeah, it's over there. That's great. Um, you can see it behind him. Wonderful. Um, Ronnie, I'll call you Ronnie. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was really a, an amazing conversation um, that I, I think there's many, many other questions um, here, especially about how to implement this. But I would highly recommend that everyone go to the HBS. You, you just have to put into Google HBS um, impact weighted accounts and you will find uh, some very helpful articles that uh, discuss exactly how you make some of these trade-offs. And I think they'll be very useful for young entrepreneurs as well to think about how you think about your own impact um, so that all of us can carry forward uh, this new vanguard. Thank you again for joining us. Thank you everyone who joined us um, through Zoom and, and on Facebook Live.